Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch that you can run for your group. This season, we're building a Deadlands game using the Deadlands Classic rule set. So if you don't already have the Player's Handbook and Marshall's Guide for that system, you can try to pick them up used or head over to the Pinnacle Entertainment website at peginc.com and you can pick them up in PDF form. All right, so last week I told you we'd be continuing our build by getting our group to Wyoming and figuring out what comes next, but there's just one little problem with that. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen next. So we're going to call an audible this week and handle this as a GM's update session. And I have to admit that even with the campaign recap that's coming up later, this is going to be a shorter episode than usual. So I do want to apologize for that in advance. Now, I do need to address a couple of things before we get into the meat of today's show. Several of our listeners got in touch with me over the past week and expressed concerns about me based on last week's show. It wasn't necessarily the content of the show they were worried about. It was more about how I sounded and how the pace was going. So let's address that right up front. I, uh, I don't have a valid excuse. I really don't. I do my best each and every week to make sure I'm in the best headspace and physical condition I can be in to record both of my shows. However, I did notice when I was editing last week's show that something seemed a bit off. I don't know if it's I didn't get enough sleep or maybe I had too many energy drinks before I recorded. Regardless, my vocal quality and pacing were way off from what I usually do, and I noticed I seemed to have a bit more of an edge to some of my comments. So I hear you. And I've spent most of the past week trying to figure out why that was the case and then work to make sure that I don't let it happen again. And uh, you weren't the only ones who noticed, trust me. My game group pointed it out to me before we started the game last week, and they've known me longer than most, so if they see it, that can't be good. So with all of that in mind, I do want to apologize, and I do want to let you know I'm going to do my best to improve and not let that happen again. Hopefully, this week's show is 100 times better from a me perspective. Okay, so with that explanation and apology covered, I want to get into why we're not having a new build this week. And to answer that, I do need to back up just a bit. First off, I'm not going to do a recap this week. I'm saving it for next week, so we'll do our usual recap and then build kind of show that we usually do. However, it was noted by multiple listeners that last week's build seemed to be a little bit more rushed than usual. And there were a few even who, they didn't say it directly, they kind of hinted at the fact that the build seemed to be a little lazy on my part. And in listening back to the show, especially when I was editing it, I certainly can see those points. So let's talk about it. From the very beginning, I had always intended to have one of the board members decide to not fight the group. And instead, they were going to decide to just help them out along their quest. Now, at the very beginning, that was going to be the banker, Jonathan O'Toole. And I was playing it like that for quite some time. But once I went back and remembered that, you know, it's entirely possible somebody's group just took this dude out early on, I knew I was going to need to pivot for the overall game. Amani Lato, the snake oil salesman, was who I decided would be that person. And if you go back and look at the build that was leading into the Zebediah Thomas encounter, I kind of started planting the seeds for that even back then. So that part of the campaign came out pretty much the way I envisioned it from from the beginning. It's the Cheng Li portion of the build that I was always kind of stuck on. I mean, it could have been another deal like in Salt Lake City where the group needed to stake out the warehouse, work their way through triad members, and then take her out and get her information. 
but I really kind of felt like we'd played that particular tune a couple of times already during this campaign. So if I was going to have an encounter, I wanted it to be something different. And I got to be honest, I racked my brain trying to come up with something that my group would find acceptable to do with that encounter. Because I figured if they would find it acceptable, you would find it acceptable. So then what happened? <laughs> well, uh, the, the bell rang. It was time to actually write and record last week's episode. So what I decided was I already had Bronson Atwell get away in Deadwood. So now I had a tool that I could use to at least move the plot forward. The problem is that I'd really already planned to have the group fight Atwell in Montana. The idea was that the group was going to sweep in, kill Atwell, save Lotto, and that would give her that extra added little oomph push she needed to forsake the board inside with the group. So I'd put myself in a pickle. What do I do with Lee? And how do I do something that makes any sort of sense? So I decided to go ahead and use Atwell, but shift his target to Lee. Now, again, I could have just done it the way I had imagined with Lotto, let Lee be the one to turn, but I had another issue with that as well. The problem for me was that as the leader of a triad gang, Lee wasn't going to just necessarily be the type to flip on the board because they'd shown up and taken up some thorn in her side. It's possible, but it just didn't, it didn't sound right to me. So I ultimately went with what we laid out last week. Yeah. I'll grant you, it was rushed. And yeah, in places it sounded sloppy. I do think it can all be presented in a way that cleans it up better. And if I had that episode to rewrite and re-record, I can assure you it would come out a whole lot better. But ultimately, I did what I did. And that's what happens sometimes when you're creating, especially when you're writing an entire game with a weekly deadline. So yeah, I, I have a few regrets about last week's build, and that's why I decided I was not going to rush into things this week. I do have a few ideas that are percolating about where we go from here, but I wanted another week to think them over further and try to make the best storytelling decision I could before I commit to words for a podcast. So we get this week's episode and our GM's update session. So what exactly are we going to cover here? Well, this is going to be an opportunity for me to address a few things that have been on my mind as I've been writing. Things I've said we'd follow up on and hadn't, or little plot holes I've noticed as I've been running for my group. After all, my group is essentially the beta testers for what we're creating here. We have to look at a beta test like a scientific experiment. The GM, like the scientist, has a theory that they're trying to prove, and the group will either prove it or disprove it. And like a scientific experiment, one should always report one's findings and make corrections where necessary. So one of the things I think we need to hit on first is the amounts of money that we're handing out. I really think, overall, we're probably handing out too much money. And for the record, I'm handing out way more money to my group than you probably are to yours. I mean, when you think about it, $500 was a lot of money in 1876. I mean, it's a lot in 2022, don't get me wrong. But in 1876, $500 could last you for a very long time if you spent it right. So to be giving out thousands of dollars every time the group takes on a contract really seems to almost be too much. Now, I think I've mentioned this a time or two during the build, but if you aren't that comfortable giving out the amounts of money we're giving out, you always have the GM fiat to change them. You know how much your group will need to handle the basics, plus a few upgrades from time to time, so you know how much money would be appropriate. If you happen to be one of those who doesn't really care how much money the group has on hand, then don't sweat it. Leave it just the way it is. 
And if you've been giving out the money the way it's been written, I'd suggest you don't start changing at this point. It's always easier to go from not giving much at all to giving more than to do it in reverse. And it causes a lot less frustration from your players. Less frustration typically equals less conflict. And while we're talking about giving out things, I actually think I haven't been giving out enough chips to the players. I mean, I know we've been giving out more lately, but that's because of the increased risks they're taking. Again, if you disagree with me, leave things the way they are. However, as I look at my group, they're very rarely getting to the 10 chip limit, so they're not cashing in chips as frequently as I thought they were. That means they're not making character improvements as often as they thought they would, and if I want to throw bigger challenges out to them, at some point I have to consider giving out more chips. Or I could just look at it from the position of the fact that I've given them a ton of money so they could purchase items that would compensate for the lower stats the characters have. I mean, I don't know. We could go either way on this. Thoughts? Now, I've got another point I wanted to hit on today, and this goes back quite a few sessions. I've been asked about the situation in Salt Lake City and whether or not it's ever going to be revisited. Now, that's something I've gone back and forth on a few times over the past month or so, and I'm not 100% sold on either possibility. I mean, it would stretch the campaign out longer, certainly, to have that situation come back to bite the group. But how do we weave it back into the campaign so that it doesn't feel like it's forced? Again, I have a couple of thoughts on that, and I'll share one of them with you here. And of course, as always, I welcome your feedback. The thought is that we could pull Salt Lake City back into the story in Wyoming. I mean, having soldiers from Deseret show up there would be an interesting story point. But how do we weave it into the story so it makes sense? Do we have Atwell be a part of it? Does it just go back to the Mormons being extremely annoyed by the group's actions the last time they were there? Or do we hold off on Wyoming and pick another place to bring this storyline back up? I mean, it's, it's one of the two major game possibilities I've been looking into before we get to Undertaker, or at least the finale with Undertaker. Stay tuned. I'm going to hold off on the other idea for now because I got to admit it's not nearly as fully formed as the one I just shared. And I have gotten some questions about who Undertaker is. Well, you're actually going to find that out in my game recap here in just a little bit, because my group managed to figure it out this past session. Now, some of you have tweeted theories to me over the past few weeks, and while most of you were on the right track, only a few of you were actually right. But like I said, you'll find out later in the show when we do the game recap. Moving on down the question list, I've got this one. I've been asked about the comments I've made about how many possible sessions are left for this campaign. Especially after last week's show, folks are worried that I'm in a rush to wrap this game up and move on. On the contrary, last week was an anomaly for me, I can assure you. I see at least a month, month and a half's worth of build sessions for this campaign, so we're going to be doing this at least until late November, probably earlier December. Also, I want to assure you that even once we finish this campaign, the show will not end. I've already got the next game for my group picked out, and I might have a second group lined up to play that game or maybe something else. For the curious out there, my regular group will be playing Fallout for their next game. No, I haven't started writing anything for it yet. I'm still really wrapped up in creating for the game that we're playing right now. But we will cover that game pretty much the same way we've covered this one, so there will be a Season 2 for the campaign build-along. I have to be honest, the Fallout game kind of came out of a place I hadn't expected because the group had originally settled on Firefly for the next game. However, my daughter has been trying to convince her boyfriend to roleplay, and she suggested we try that game because he's a really big fan of Fallout. 
So while I bought it for them, my group found out about it. And, you know, the younger players kind of really decided we needed to play it. And so us three old farts just kind of said, eh, we'll go along with the flow. Now, it's kind of a sub-question. I've also been asked what I plan to do with the show if Jim starts running another game once I'm done with this one or at some other point down the line. I mean, after all, Jim and I are the two primary GMs for our group, and I do know he's been chomping at the bit to both play and run, so I know at some point he is going to run. When that happens, and like I said, I know it will, it's only going to subtly impact the build along. We will still do episodes where we build a complete campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. The only difference, we won't be having the game recap sessions every other week. That's it. So we will build. And we might build games I haven't mentioned here since there have been some folks making suggestions. And I'm sure we're going to get a lot more suggestions during the Archon 45 appearance this weekend. So yeah. All right, I've got two more points to cover, then we move on. The first is that I want to address Jim's departure from the group and his return, which was last week's session. Now, he left for personal reasons, and once he dealt with those, he came back to play. Now, I mentioned that to discuss this. How do you handle it if or when a member of your group has to leave and be gone for a large number of consecutive sessions? Should you write them completely out of the game? Should you write them out of the upcoming sessions but leave a way for them to come back? Should you kill off the character and be done with it? You could go with any of these and not necessarily be wrong, but I would suggest speaking with the player in question about it before you make a decision. And while Jim and I didn't have a real deep, in-depth discussion, I always got the feeling that if his situation changed, he'd be coming back to the game. That's the vibe he gave me, so I knew I wasn't going to kill off his character or write it completely out of the game. Now, if you'll remember back to one of the very early game recaps, I had him leave in the middle of the night, leaving the group a note explaining he had a bounty to take care of that he didn't want to obligate the group with having to go along on. That was just vague enough to leave me room to work with later, and just specific enough to give the group some reason why their friend had walked out on him in the middle of the night. So when Jim informed me just a little over a week before the last session that he was coming back, I had a bit of time to figure out exactly what he'd been up to. Now, I sent him an email, and while I'd considered just reading it to you here, I decided to summarize it instead. What I decided was that the bounty was actually a mission for an old friend and war buddy. The friend's wife and daughter had been kidnapped, and there was only one man he trusted to go after them. So Jim's character wound up riding all over the West to track them down, deal with the people who'd kidnapped them, and then bring them home. And to bring him back to the game immediately, I told him he'd been reading of the group's various missions in the newspapers as they were gaining a bit of notoriety. I'll explain how we met him in Deadwood when we get to the game night recap. I know I said two more points, but I kind of sort of covered them both at the same time. How do you deal with the departing player and what do you do to bring him back? Fortunately for us, the way this campaign is set up allows for the dropping in and dropping out of characters. Obviously, if we were doing a big dungeon crawl like in D&D, that wouldn't be quite as easy. In a case like that, you'd probably be better served to either play the character as an NPC until the group gets out of the dungeon or have them fade into the background and then just leave once the group gets out of the dungeon. That, of course, again, your call. You have to do what you're most comfortable with. Okay, so I think we've covered everything I wanted to cover, though I'm sure I'll think of something right after I've finished recording this episode. If that's the case, we'll just put those thoughts at the beginning of the next episode, and we'll just move on from there. So we'll end the GM's update session and move on to the game recap from my session last week. But of course, some things never change, so you know we have to recap what they did last session before we dive into what they did this session. 
First things first, we only had two players at the last session, Scott and Gabe. We began the session with the group headed for the Wagon Wheel Casino in Albuquerque. They went in, Gabe gambled a little bit, then they met up with Buster Shannon, who agreed to provide them with useful information to use against Zebediah Thomas in exchange for letting him die. The group agreed, and Shannon told them about the house they'd want to be at around 4 a.m. Shannon went his way, the group went theirs, and they went to the provided address at the provided time. They found the things they were supposed to, then set up an ambush for the two men they heard coming. Thomas was taken out with a headshot, then interrogated by Scott with his special powers. He found out that Thomas had nothing nice to say about his deceased wife, and he pretty much admitted he'd had her killed. They also found the bracelet thingy he was using to control his own form of walking dead. They got away, got back to their hotel, and headed out of town in the morning. They got to Dodge City, where they met up with Thomas's daughter and provided her with the packet of information they'd gotten from Buster Shannon. Then Scott managed to speak with the spirit of her mother as a nice gesture towards her. They left Dodge and returned to Denver, where Mr. Norwood came to them and told them about the disappearance of Jonathan O'Toole. While they spoke, a telegram came to the group from Bronson Atwell, who admitted he kidnapped O'Toole and challenged the group to meet him in Deadwood. We ended with the group on the train as it rolled into Deadwood. So that's where we pick up with our recap of last week's session. Now, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Jim returned to the group after a long absence and all of our group was back together for the first time in a very long time, which meant I had all six players on hand for the session. Now, there was quite a bit of time taken up throughout the session for the group to bring Jim and his character up to speed on what they'd been doing. And Jim and his character expressed disappointment in them that they'd started taking bounties to kill people from individuals instead of law enforcement. Anyway, the group noticed Jim at the train station as soon as they got off the train. He pointed out to them that there was some heat on them in town as word was spreading that they'd be coming to town to kill Bronson Atwell. And he'd been passing through when he heard the rumors, so he decided to just stay and wait for them to get there. This was the point where the rest of the group had to start explaining exactly what was going on and why they were there. As expected, the group headed for the hotel and got rooms, then decided to go get something to eat before they tried to locate Atwell. They headed for one of the two restaurants in town, but folks gave them the evil eye the whole time, and this is where I decided to have Seth Bullock meet them. The conversation went pretty much the same way as we drew it up, though the group did suggest that Bullock is working for Atwell, though it had already been stated that Atwell was one of the men responsible for getting him that post. However, what my group meant was that he was working for Atwell as an errand boy or stooge, which he most assuredly was not. He passed along his warning, tossed a $5 bill on the table, then walked out. By this point, the restaurant had cleared out, except for the waitress, who dropped a large platter of something that didn't look very appetizing onto the table. The group decided suddenly that they weren't hungry anymore and left to go meet Atwell at the saloon, as Bullock had informed them he was there waiting for them. This is where things started to veer off from what we built, which shouldn't have surprised me, but it still managed to do so. The conversation started like we built it. However, it was obvious to me early on that they weren't buying any of Atwell's negotiation tactics and instead decided to try one of their own, which was to slightly play to his ego. Once they did that, I made a roll for Atwell, and I forget what it was and I didn't put it in my notes. It doesn't really matter because I rolled three D12s and got two ones and a two, so... So it means Atwell decided these might be some guys he could play. So he suggested that they could work for him. He noted he had O'Toole in a barn on his property and that he was still alive. 
The issue he had was that there was a Wendigo trapped in the barn with him, and he didn't win a deal with that. So he was willing to pay the group $6,000 to do it themselves, and even counted out the money and handed it over. Again, the group seemed to not be buying what he was selling, but they were willing to play along and see where this went. I made another of the same rolls I just made, blew that one, and I had Atwell go even further. He offered to hire the group to do what they'd already been doing, go off and kill the remaining board members other than O'Toole and himself, of course. After a lot of back and forth, the group decided they wanted to take the evening to think things over, and Atwell agreed to meet them in the morning for breakfast. The group was looking for a somewhat secluded place to have their conversation and decided that the other side of the train tracks would work since nobody was over there. They discussed everything that had just happened and came to multiple conclusions. Atwell was lying, O'Toole was probably already dead, and the Wendigo had to be dealt with. Now, Tyler noted that Wendigos are very difficult to kill and just dynamiting them might not be enough, and he also noted it wouldn't be recommended as the Sioux living in the area would probably object. The group discussed things for a few more minutes before it was agreed that Tyler and Gabe would head out and try to find the Sioux to discuss whether or not they'd be allowed to blow up the Wendigo. The other four stayed behind and kept discussing the situation. I had Tyler and Gabe walk into another room with me while we played out their encounter. I had them run into the same shaman and warriors that we'd written up before. This time I had the shaman coming to look for them as their reputation was much more positive with the Sioux and they were hoping the group would deal with the Wendigo before it escaped and forced the Sioux to have to. The shaman reluctantly agreed to allow them to dynamite, but requested that the damage to the surrounding forest be kept to a minimum, which they agreed to do. And as they were talking, they noticed a flying machine taking off and flying to the south-southwest. The shaman noted that it was Atwell's, as he'd heard about it and seen it before. I took a moment then to step into the other room and let the other four know that they'd seen this as well. The shaman informed them that O'Toole was already dead. He'd sensed a lot of evil and death when he was near the barn previously. Tyler and Gabe wrapped up their conversation and returned to town. At this point, the group was still deciding what they wanted to do, but figuring that Atwell had left town, they figured they'd blow up the barn and get rid of the Wendigo before they went off and chased after him. It was at this point that something I'd written in earlier as an almost throwaway came into play. If you'll remember, when the group met with Atwell, he produced a letter written by The Undertaker. I also noted that the group felt like they'd seen that handwriting before. So at that time, I'd had all six group members roll, and Gabe hit my target number of 18. I told him he'd seen the handwriting before in Triumph. He deduced that there were only two places he could have seen it there, the general store and the marshal's office. Fast forwarding back to this conversation, the group was beginning to toss out theories about who the undertaker could be and how he figured into this. So I decided to reveal him earlier than I'd originally planned, and when somebody wondered if Mr. Norwood was the Undertaker, I asked everybody but Jim, since he hadn't met Norwood before, to roll a knowledge check, just a straight knowledge check. Gabe, Max, and Aniston all hit the target, and they realized that Norwood and Ed Stewart, who was the Marshal of Triumph, presumed to have been killed when the city was burned to the ground, as you might remember, look an awful lot alike. Gabe took that nugget, combined it with the handwriting, and realized the truth. Ed Stewart somehow survived and is the Undertaker. They questioned how that could be possible, and after they'd kicked it around for a couple of minutes, I pointed out that all the bodies they'd seen in Triumph except one had been very badly burned before some of them became walking dead. 
They had assumed one of them was Ed Stewart because he was wearing Ed's vest and badge. However, now that they think about it, they can't say beyond a reasonable doubt that the body they burned in triumph was Ed Stewart. So there's your big reveal. Now, at this point, the conversation seemed to be working in circles. So as the GM, I asked him whether or not they were going to blow up the barn and they decided that they were. Aniston and Scott handled it and they positioned their dynamite and it set up in a manner that would blow everything in, then up. While this was going on, Gabe was sketching the ruins on the walls and the door. At one point, Scott pulled out the rosary bracelet thingy they got from Zebediah Thomas, unwrapped it, and showed it to Jim to point out what they had. When he did that, I had him make an opposed spirit check, which he lost. My reasoning was, so you understand, was that with him pulling that evil object out, the voice that had messed with him the last time it was out would probably mess with him again. And that's exactly what it did. It giggled at him and kept telling him that he could blow up everyone and be done with them. Now, Scott really played it well. He kept telling the voice to shut up, and he'd do it right in the middle of a conversation with one of the other group members, which of course concerned them, since this is the guy wiring up dynamite. <laughs> Ultimately, though, he didn't act on it, and I didn't push him too much or make him roll again. The dynamite was successfully wired, then it was lit, and needless to say, they accomplished their task. Oh, and they managed to find a chunk of O'Toole in the carnage and get the dying declaration we wrote up. Now, before they had headed off to do all of this, they had decided to go tell Bullock what they were up to. As you might expect, based on how we set him up at the build, he was having issues believing him. But since the compound is outside of Deadwood, he admitted technically it was out of his jurisdiction. However, he told them once they finished the job and came back to town, they needed to leave. He told them he'd hold the train for them and he'd pay their fare just so long as they left. They obliged and decided to head for Denver as it seemed that's where Atwell's flying ship was headed. They got to Denver, checked into a hotel, and sent word to Norwood that they'd failed and needed a meeting. By this point, they decided that when Norwood showed up, they'd try to subdue him and figure out what was up. Four days after checking in, they got their package. However, with the revelations we had in this session instead of what we'd written, I made a change. Because when the group saw the finger, they assumed automatically that Norwood was dead. So they asked Scott to do his thing. When he contacted, he asked if he heard Norwood's voice and was very surprised when I told him Atwell is the one who responded. He told Scott that that didn't go the way I planned. Long story short, he noted that Undertaker was Norwood and was headed to Sacramento to take care of Cheng Lee. So the group decided they needed to get to Billings, Montana to figure out what the deal was with Amani Lotto and wait for Ed Stewart to meet them there. Now, as part of the background I gave Jim on his adventures away from the group, I told him he'd actually met Amani Lotto, and he never got the impression she was a bored-type person. However, she had said something offhand once about having left a group. I just told him he'd assumed it was a cattleman's association or something. So the group decided Lotto might be an ally and decided to protect her when they got there. Doing the math, they realized if they took the train to Billings, Stuart would be able to get there well before them and take Lotto out if that was his plan. So they decided to hire an airship of their own. They found one place in Denver that has airships. But the guy who owns the place doesn't know how to fly them well and his pilot quit. But he did say he'd sell the airship for $12,000 and could explain how to fly it. The group gave him two cases of that $1,000 a bottle tequila and the deal was made. Now, Gabe has the best driving skill, and I realize driving isn't exactly what we want here, but I decided to go easy on them since this isn't something they'd have realized was possible when they created their characters. So, Gabe's the pilot. 
He made multiple driving rolls, and all of them were well about the targets I'd had. They got to Billings in a couple of days, landed, and met with Imani Lato. She informed them that Stuart wasn't coming to Billings, mostly because of the curse she'd had placed on him the very first time the whole board met. She admitted she'd had it placed on all of them, and it was an aversion curse, but also relented when it was suggested he might have countered it. She noted she had other ways to deal with Stuart if he showed up, but also pointed out that, logically, if Stuart knew they had two options and knew they'd try to get ahead of him, why would he bother to go where he knew they'd be waiting for him? The group did have to agree with that, and they asked if she had a thought about where he might head if he's not coming here. This is where the Wyoming location from our build session came in, and when the group suggested it might not be worth it, she pointed out there would be a lot of really good intelligence they could get there, and I noted it would be comparable to what they got in Albuquerque, only on a continental scale. The group decided to take the airship to Wyoming and either run into Stewart or hopefully get some ideas on where to head next. And that's where we ended our session. Next week, I promise you we're going to pick up the build with our group on the way to Wyoming and we'll start picking up some genuine steam. Now, at this point, it should become very obvious that my group is going to be running way ahead of what we're building. It's perfectly okay. This happens all the time. Modules are written and groups figure out how to skip half the stuff in them. Don't sweat it. I'm going to write this campaign for your group the way I'd always intended to, and I'll run my group the way they've steered the campaign. All it really means is that my group will probably be done well before the build is, and that's okay too. We're just going to run with it. So as this podcast releases, I'm getting ready to make the 15-minute drive from my house to head to Collinsville, Illinois to be a part of Archon 45. We'll have multiple members of the Bad GM Productions family over there over the course of the weekend, and we'll be doing live check-ins on our Facebook page, Twitter, and YouTube throughout the weekend. However, you know the best way to see us is to come see us live, so check out the Archon website at archonstl.org for more details. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org for more details. And uh, obviously, if you're listening to this on the YouTube channel instead of the live feed, I apologize, but you missed us because the YouTube feed runs a week behind the podcast feed. Sorry about that. We've also got a new episode of Role Playing History up and available now. We're covering the Harn campaign setting as well as the game Harn Master. If you're interested in a realistic style of fantasy role playing game, this is a show you're going to want to check out. Role Playing History is available wherever you find your podcast or from our website, badgmproductions.com. Net. All Deadlands classic materials referenced during this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying these or any of their other fine gaming products, check out their website, peginc.com. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license free, royalty free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions, email us badgmproductions at gmail.com, and the website, of course, as I've said, is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we actually build and we see what's so darn special about Wyoming. And we'll get this campaign into turn four of our race. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.